Good morning. I am excited to be with you all as we continue in this series, A Blessing and a Curse. And um, when the pastors were all gathered and we were talking about like, hey, who's gonna preach when? And you know, Gabby and Christian and Sam and I, and they, they said, well, I think the week on the curse, we want you to preach. I'm like, what? <laughs> well, that's fun. I get the bad news. Um, so I'm preaching today on the curse. And much in the same way that we talked about hashtag blessed, actually, what it really is, today we're talking about hashtag cursed, actually. What is it? And why do we, when we do a whole series on blessing, why do we include in the very title a blessing and a curse? And I think some of that will be self-evident as we go through this sermon, but I want to say to all of us that if we don't talk about the curse and the brokenness in the world, then actually we won't be able to receive or understand what the, how deep and rich the blessing is. And so we're gonna talk today through some pieces of Deuteronomy and some pieces of, of Genesis. Deuteronomy is this book that was found later uh, in Israel's history, and when they found it, it, it sparked this kind of revolution among them of change to, to reform the way they practice religion, but what it is is three long sermons from Moses, and then he dies. So I'm like, maybe I should watch my sermon times, because... <laughs> That's a lot. Um, we're gonna start with where we get the title for our whole series, A Blessing and a Curse, and it's in Deuteronomy chapter 11. So we're gonna jump right in, and it says this. It says, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of your Lord God, the Lord your God, that I'm giving you today, and the curse, if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn away from the, that I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. So this idea of the blessing and the curse, the blessing is associated with connection with God, the curse is associated with disconnection from God, and this, this book ends this like sermon that, that Moses is about to give and it kind of hyperlinks. If you're like scrolling through a website, you see like a hyperlink, it jumps you somewhere else. It jumps you to Deuteronomy 30. And in Deuteronomy 30, we have the most instances of the word curse appear in the Bible altogether. And this idea that he connects it with there is this idea of in the blessing, he says, I set before you a blessing and a curse and the blessing equals life and the curse equals death. And then he invites all the people of Israel, choose life. Like choose life, choose that connection and engage in that connection. And so there's this invitation here um, to be connected not to a curse but to a blessing. Now, we have a problem in that our modern definition of curse is a little bit different than the biblical definition. So I asked Mr. Oxford and his dictionary to give me a definition of curse. He gave me two. Ready, here's the first one. A solemn utterance intended to invoke a supernatural power to inflict harm or punishment on someone or something. I mean, we see this in TV and movies all the time. Like, if someone pronounces a curse on someone or does some sort of magic and there's a curse, you know? Um, we see it in, uh, like, social media, even the way that people kind of imagine curse. A lot of it's associated with this. The other definition that Oxford gave us is probably something that maybe more of, of us are more familiar with on a day-to-day -day basis. It's a coarse or blasphemous word or phrase 
used to express anger or other strong emotion. Anyone in the room ever experienced that kind of curse, right? <laughs> and, and it's funny because you know, I'll be out with friends like golfing or you know, something, and all of a sudden they'll be like, God, and you know the other word that they're gonna put there. And I'm imagining like, are you asking God to send that golf club or ball to an eternal destiny of hell? Like, is that really what we want to do, <laughs> right? But it's become so natural and so rote to us. But the biblical concept of, like, the curse is much richer and deeper. But the, the concept of the curse that I grew up with was from the ever-theological Scooby-Doo. You know, in Scooby-Doo, you have, like, you have the, the, you know, Fred and the whole team, and they're trying to solve the, the mystery of the cursed ship or, you know, the mystery of the whatever cursed whatever, and always there's some bad guy, and, you know, you know he's a bad guy because he has the mustache. Like, you have to have the mustache. Sorry, men with mustaches in here. But you have to have that mustache, and you're the bad guy, and then, you know, all of a sudden they d- d- find out it's Mr. Smithers. Wait, that's from The Simpsons. Uh, some other bad guy, you know, and they reveal it, and he says, curse you kids, I would have got away with it too, you know, at the great unveiling. And I think sometimes we think about cursing even as we think about the Bible as if it's like the work of some magical spell or the work of some maniacal villain, and that isn't true at all. The, the, the biblical curse is not a magic spell. It is not the work of a villain. And so we have to go back to the scripture and unpack and look at where this idea of the curse comes from. So if you would um, turn with me into Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three. Um, and I'm gonna start at verse 14. I believe it's going to come up on the screen unless the screen froze again. There we go. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her heirs he will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. So underline that passage, he will crush your head. We're gonna come back to it later. But again, as we begin to see this first curse in the Bible, now I'm, gonna, I'm just jumping you right into where it is. You're like, what on earth? A serpent is cursed? What's going on? Um, the, the serpent here is the representative image of the devil or Satan. That the the truth is that there is a spiritual reality out there, and the Bible articulates it as one of the angels who um, kind of went against God and along with a third of the angels was cast out. And this angel becomes Lucifer, or how we articulate Satan, which actually Satan comes from a Greek word just meaning adversary, the adversary. And so now this serpent is an embodiment of the enemy, and this serpent is gonna get cursed first or experience the curse. So then it goes on to say, now to the woman. So he's got a threefold curse in this first iteration of what a curse is. The woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. A painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I could do like 10 sermons on this passage alone, but not, not today. Um, your, uh, then it says, then now the third expression. To Adam, he says, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, 
you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will will return. This is the first articulation in the Bible of a curse, and it's woven in this biblical poetic language of creation. In, In our last couple of sermons, we connected the words blessing with life, with um, a movement outward and a multiplication of life. Now, the word curse is being connected biblically with these words like death and um, destruction, and it's, it's a uncreation. And what it is, and what, what we need to get our head around biblically, is that curse is the absence of the life-giving connection with God. It is a reality. So one of the things that we think about with curses is sometimes like as if God is up there deciding who's gonna bless, who's gonna curse. But that isn't the biblical image. The way that the Bible is reshaping this image is that the curse is simply disconnection from God. That in our connection with God, he designed all humanity to receive life from him. And now, because of the choices that we made, because of our brokenness, and because of falling for the trick, that all of humanity lives under this broad picture of this curse, which is a disconnection from him. In order to understand who the real villain is, then we have to go back a little bit further. I intentionally jumped in right at the curse because if you just read the curse, you're like, what on earth is God doing? Did anyone else read that? Like, why? Why would he curse a serpent? Why would he curse man? Why would he curse woman? How is all this working? But when we understand the nature of the story before it, we begin to see what God is doing is not some pronouncing some judgment, but he's actually saying, I'm gonna let you have it your way. And these are the natural consequences of the path that they already chose. That he's stepping back and, and letting them experience the pain and the brokenness that they initiated. So we have to jump back a few verses. Genesis 3, starting with verse 1. It says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Pause. There's so much history and stuff wrapped up in here. The first thing is this. The enemy comes after what God said. He wants to twist our perceptions of what God says. And that still happens today. Man, the times that I see scripture misused, uh, maybe used as a hammer, as a weapon, um, the ways that we get the Bible backwards from time to time, that if we aren't paying attention to what God actually did say in the words of his scripture, then much like Eve in this moment, we will be um, susceptible to some of that twisting. You know, when, uh, when someone's being trained as a teller how to tell a fake currency from a real one, now they have those pens, 
But before that, it, it was you deal with the real stuff and you begin to know what the fake stuff feels like. What Eve didn't have is a deep connection to the real stuff. Um, that she, she allowed herself to be susceptible. And you notice in this, she says, um, and we must not even touch it or we will die. That actually isn't what God said in the first command. He said, don't eat, don't eat of this fruit. He didn't say don't touch it. You're like, Jeremy, that's an insignificant detail. Actually, it's really significant when you first reach up to it, grab it, and you're like, oh, didn't die. Maybe I should take a bite. That these kind of imageries, are, they, they're, they're a picture of the broader ways that we just drift. We just begin to drift. And so it goes on. The serpent says, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Whoa, pause. You see, this idea, this invitation to be like God, we were already created to be like God. We were made in God's image. So God made us like him in all the right ways. His design was that we would be like him in his character. But the problem is, is that in this moment, Adam and Eve are gonna be convinced that we should be like him in other ways. Power, authority, knowing good from evil. Well, we were designed to know good from evil. We were designed to know good from evil by choosing good. The answer is good. We were designed to know good from evil by choosing good. But we ended up knowing good from evil by choosing evil. There we go. That actually here, there's this um, movement towards being like God in the negative ways. I call them the omnis. You know, like, we all want to be omniscient. We want to know everything. We want to be omnipresent, because if you look at our schedules, sometimes we think we can be everywhere at once. And the world struggles with a power problem, doesn't it? They want to be all-powerful or exert control over each other. And these are the ways that God says, you are not to be like me, because your character can't handle that. But your character is to be like me, full of grace and truth, to be representatives of God's authority. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. We always forget that part. Like it's like Adam was somehow like gone, you know, oh, I didn't hear. I mean, I do that all the time. Like, oh, honey, I'm just doing dishes. But Adam was with her. There could be like so many different sermons just on this phrase alone. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it and the eyes were both of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, what happens to them is that they now realize, oh, I, I have done something I shouldn't do. I am now vulnerable, I am now revealed. It's not just about physical nakedness, though in the imagery of the poem it is, but it's about the condition of our heart, that something is already fractured in this moment. God hasn't pronounced a single curse yet, but we already see a fracturing. And so they sew together fig leaves. Uh, And then it says this, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid, pause. 
If you've been with us a while, you've probably heard me say this before. Was God somehow like surprised that Adam wasn't around? Like, oh, where's Adam? I don't know. As if God needed to know where Adam was. Who needed to know that Adam was hiding? Adam and Eve, right? Mankind, hum- humankind. I think it's actually this picture of God's grace that when we hide, God calls to us. That, that he invites us close. That instead of it's like, where are you, Jeremy? Where are you, Derek and Chris? Where are you, Jacob? Where are you, Matt? Where are you, Adam? If someone in here is named Adam, it's just for you. I'm just kidding. But do you see this truth that's woven deep? It's an invitation to come out. And so the man does. And he asks him, like, hey, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Did God need to know that he had eaten? God already knew. God already knows. Who needed to know? Humankind. And so the man, the man said, the, <laughs> I can't even say it. <laughs> the woman that you put here with me. Do you are, I mean, it's, it's obvious, right? The, the, the fracturing, the brokenness already exists. God hasn't pronounced a curse yet. And what do we see? A brokenness in relationship. She did it. This woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. You see, the the fracturing that is articulated in the curse that follows this is God saying to them, hey, here's what's already happened. These are the natural consequences. Your relationship with me is broken. Your relation, you try to hide from me. You try to hide, and we're still doing it today. We hide from God. We, we use all sorts of fig leaves. Have you ever seen a fig leaf? That thing's not gonna cover anything. <laughs> we use all sorts of modern fig leaves to cover ourselves, to hide from God. You see, I don't need to go back all the way to Adam and Eve to see the brokenness. I can even look in my own life or the generations by me to see the pain and the ways that things aren't the way they should be. We are living under the curse. When I grew up in confirmation, you know, the question was like, why do bad things happen to good people, stuff like that, you know? What, where, where's all the brokenness in the world come from? And it's, I sinned, you sinned, or we live in a world full of sin. Now, sin is simply that disconnection, that brokenness, the things we try to fill the dead place with. Years ago here, when I first got here, I did a series called Transformed. And in that series, I talked about what a human soul is, the nephesh, the life. And it's body, mind, spirit. And at the very center of that is where God breathed his ruach, his breath, and made us into a living being. That place died in humanity. It's dead. And all this brokenness is the ripple effects, the byproducts. So as God articulates the brokenness between us and God, then the brokenness between us and each other, and the brokenness between us and all of creation. And every single human lives in the midst of all of that. So when we ask the question, 
Who is the arch villain? Who is the magical spellcaster? How did we get cursed? The answer is if Fred were gonna unveil us, it would be more like this picture. I've seen the enemy, and the enemy is me. That in fact, we are the ones who initiated the curse. That I don't need to go further into arch villainry. Now you might be asking me right now, Jeremy, what if I'm under a curse? What if I'm experiencing the brokenness right now that I didn't, that isn't a natural consequence for my sin or my brokenness? Absolutely, because we live in this world that, that just reverberates with the ripple effects of that, that harm and that brokenness that was done. God does not will anyone to be diagnosed with cancer. God does not will anyone to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. God's heart is not for our hearts to literally fail on us. It's part of the brokenness that reverberates throughout creation. Or you might be saying, Jeremy, why on earth would I choose a curse? I wouldn't choose the curse. Anyone in this room choose yourself over others this week? Anyone in this room numb pain with something that's not good for us? Anyone in this room um, have a disconnected relationship with someone else in the world? You see, we all limp and hobble with the the reverberations of the curse. We don't choose it in the sense like, in the same way God doesn't say, here, I could choose to bless you or curse you. Actually, what God does is says, blessing is connection with me And then the natural reality of the broken world is the experience of the curse. God isn't like, I'm gonna curse you. No, it's just what happens without being connected. But there's good news. You see, because I'm the archvillain. But there's good news. You're the archvillain. Did you know that you're the archvillain? Sorry. But there's good news. You see, God had a plan to reverse the curse from the very beginning. That it's woven into the text of even as God begins to articulate what the natural consequences of humanity's choices are, he puts the seeds of the gospel, the good news, in in Genesis 3, in the worst chapter of the Bible, the most painful chapter, if you really weigh it, even in the midst of it is the promise. Even when I'm trying to patch together my fig leaves to cover myself. God has something else going on, something cooking. And he knew about this and had a plan in place long before Adam and Eve ever um, broke the, um, their agreement with God, their relationship with God. He says this in Genesis 3.15. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And now it switches from plural to singular in the Bible and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. He's talking to the serpent. God's talking to the serpent, who is Satan. And this image that we're being given is is Jesus coming and fulfilling righteousness on the cross. One way to look at like the atonement, what, what it means to be saved and rescued by God, is that Satan actually has legal claim on all of us. That, that he has the right to claim humanity because we did not live up to the, the promise and the, the um, agreement that God made with us. And so now he has legal claim on all of humanity, but Jesus comes and he destroys that legal claim by taking all the brokenness of the world on himself. And now when Satan comes to make his case before God, God says, you have no standing here. 
You have no legal claim over any human here. You see, he crushed the head of the serpent. And it's woven into the words of the curse itself. I mean, gosh, people, if there isn't a more graceful passage of scripture that this promise God had a way long before And then it gets better because the way he closes out Genesis 3 is God does something uniquely powerful and you would gloss over it if you're just reading it. At the very end he says, and then he made coverings for the man and woman. I wanna compare the two verses. It's Genesis 3 um, verse 21 versus Genesis 3 verse seven. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. How did those coverings do? We've already covered this. Not so great, right? Try it sometime. Get the fig leaves and see if you can do it. Just at home. (laughs) And then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. You see, in the Bible, this is the first sacrifice. God, from the minute we fell, already knew what he was gonna do. He already made a way. And all throughout the Bible, there's this image of sacrifice and blessing that that is used to point to what Jesus would do on the cross when he fulfills everything he promised to do. So why is that good news for you and I? Because even though we fall on our face, we limp, we experience the brokenness of the curse in the world, we can all turn on TV and know something isn't the way it should be. We can all sit with ourselves for just five minutes and know something isn't the way it should be. But also, at work in the world, is there's the beauty of God's creation. There's the humanity that that appears from time to time and demonstrates God is at work. And there's the promise woven into the words of the curse that at one point in time, Jesus would come back and make all things new. Isaac Watts uh, wrote the hymn, Joy to the World. And in one of the verses, it says this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Where's the curse for you? Because God's already made a way and he comes close to you to trade the curse for blessing. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our fig leaf coverings, that you are true to yourself and you speak what's true, that the curse is real, it exists. But you've woven into the story from the very beginning our restoration, that you are so good to us that we can trust you, that you make all things new. Jesus, we offer you our hearts and we thank you that you've called us to be an example of your blessing on the world. And so we invite you to do that in our lives. Fill us so full of blessing that it goes wherever the curse is found. In Jesus' name, amen.